Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 5th. 2023 might be a historic day, the birth, some people believe, of the age of what Apple computing is calling the age of spatial computing, whatever that means. Uh, it's certainly the biggest uh, product launch in Apple's history since the Apple Watch, uh, their Vision Pro. It's all about how we see the world around us. Um, some almost 600 years ago, we had a similar product launch, although with much less fanfare. It didn't take place on the internet. Um, it was associated with a map called the Frau Moro map, a map of the world made in the 1450s by uh, a Venetian cartographer called Frau Moro. Remarkable product, certainly more remarkable, I think, in historical terms than the Vision Pro. Um, it was commissioned by uh, the King of Portugal, Alfonso V. It contained uh, images of Japan and Africa, and it could be argued it was the first real accurate map of the world. We have a new book out about it um, coming out today called Here Begins the Dark Sea, Venice, a medieval monk, and the creation of the most accurate map of the world by Meredith Francesca Small. And Meredith is joining us from Philadelphia today. Um, Meredith, how do you think um, the uh, the map, your the map that you write about in your book, will be compared with the invention of Apple's Vision Pro glasses? Are there any comparisons? Well, I think there are. Um in the sense that someone once called this map or all world maps, Mapamundi, old ones, um, aggregators. And they are sort of like encyclopedias of their time with especially this particular map that has tons of information about people and their life ways. And so maybe so. Uh, of course, Frau Morrow didn't know there was a whole other side to the world and there were two more continents. But it is incredibly uh, accurate, especially for its time. And um, I just want to say that it actually wasn't made for the King of Portugal. Uh, it, it, that's what people used to believe. But I apologize. No, no, it's uh, that's what you see everywhere. But in fact, that that one was lost, and the one that is hanging in the museum in Venice is the original, and it was made for the government of Venice. And the other thing that I think people might enjoy hearing is that it's seven feet in diameter. So this is a gigantic map and it's incredibly beautiful and it's covered with 3000 inscriptions. So it's also a world map that is explained really well, especially if you know old Veneziano. It's also upside down. So when you show that close up, that's actually the tip of Africa. And, it's, and that was on purpose. And it's the first map to really show definitively that you could sail around or row around the tip of Africa, which, of course, opened up sea trade even more uh, than they had back then. Meredith, your last book was in 2020, Inventing the World, Venice and the Transformation of Western Civilization. Very successful book. Um, 
to what extent is the map that you write about in this new book, uh, to what extent does this capture the remarkable innovation of Venetian civilization? I think the map is a visual um, port of the position of Venice during that time as one of the great cities of the world and its particular character of being surrounded by water and being the intersection of East and West and also the, the birthplace of capitalism in, in Western culture. And it's really Venice that did that. And so it's all sort of there on the map. It's also uh, when Frau Mauro drew this map, there's one idea that he was really trying to explain that all these various trading routes by water and land could be connected. And you could make the case that this is the first map that shows uh, a global world for the times of how that could be commercialized. So, uh, and that's back in 1459. In a sense, Meredith, could we think of this map as a Venetian attempt to, I don't know what word we would want to use, colonize, appropriate the world? Were maps seen as sources, manifestations of power, as land grabs in a sense? Well, they were certainly used as propaganda to reinforce religious beliefs, uh, to reinforce political beliefs. This one is a little different because it isn't religious. It's the first one uh, of a Western map that is really more based on geography and science than on religion. And certainly uh, after this map, uh, when Columbus, Columbus went to uh, America and, you know, Portuguese sailors went down the west coast of Africa and circumnavigated the bottom, that it's always been like that, that world maps uh, reflect what's going on in the world. And then sometimes they're used for political reasons. If you think about how we right now envision a world map, it's actually a political map because it has countries, mm. those, it has those boundaries, which in fact, they don't exist. And of course, uh, maps are, as you say, not just political, but the way they're perceived, the way they're drawn are political. There are those maps with Europe or the United States in the center, Ooh. and then alternative maps showing Africa, different ways of representing geography and land. So it's yeah. maps are always, uh, I don't want to uh, sound too much of a, uh, a relativist, Meredith, but maps are always in the eye of the beholder, aren't they? Always, always. And they're, they're, they are, they're always saying something. Whoever is drawing them is drawing them for a purpose. I was just recently with an Australian friend and said I would really like a map of the world with Australia in the center as the way you see it. And my friend said, yeah. And I'm sure if I went to Australia, I could get that map. I can think of nothing more awful, uh, <laughs> Meredith, than a map of the world with Australia in the center. Australia not being my favorite place. I probably just lost all my Australian listeners. Um, <laughs> So what? Uh, let, let's let's get into the weeds a little bit. This Frau Moro was he an agent of the state? The Venetian state, of course, was very strong, very authoritarian. Tell us the story of how he was commissioned to to make this map and how it connected with the the politics of the age, the Venetian uh, politics. Well, we don't know much about him at all because all his notes about the map are gone. And we don't even know if his name Mauro, which is a very common Italian name, was his real name 
or not. He wasn't, in fact, uh, he was a, a what's called a, a lay priest. He never uh, was fully uh, a monk, but he lived at the monastery uh, on San Michele, an island just north of Maine, Venice. And the little bits of records that we have, some of it are, track the spending for the map, for colors and, and things like that. Um, but when I write in the book, I have to extrapolate and explain to the reader, it could have been like this. He could have been born on Murano, maybe not. We don't mm. really know. And, and here's what life was like in Venice. We know from history books from that written by Venetian historians, this is what the atmosphere in Venice is like. It would have been normal for him to walk around town, to row himself around town, to go into apothecaries and buy colors and that sort of thing. But all that I had to extrapolate because we know he really is a mystery as a person. Uh, the map is not, but he is. And there's a little bit of evidence that he did some cartography for the Camaldolese order that he was part of. And he did a little bit with the Ministry of Water uh, on, the on the mainland in Venice. We have, we have two pieces of evidence. So he seemed to have been known as a cartographer. But at the same time, he also collected rents for the monastery. That was part of his job. Uh, he easily could have been interacting with anybody in town. Uh, he wasn't a cloistered monk at all that, that we know of. And he was working with the team. And part of that team was um, a navigator, explorer, and cartographer named Andrea uh, Bianco, who also did a world map of his own. So he was surrounded by lots of people. And uh, it seems that sometimes people went to visit him because how did he get all this information? He never really left Venice. What about, yeah, and uh, obviously the, 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 the Venetian state was the first real information state so the the data associated maybe again connects yeah. uh connects that age with our age our current age of what some people right. call surveillance yeah. capitalism you've written a lot of books um <laughs> I have. Meredith, yeah. very creative you're an anthropologist you're a sociologist mm -hmm. i wonder if you were ever intrigued enough to to make this fiction to do a kind of Umberto, Umberto Eco yes, style right. of Moro, yeah, yeah. since not, not much is known about him. I did uh, write a mystery book once, but never could sell it. Uh, but yeah, you could do that. You could do that with this. But I'm, you know, your basic academic, even though I'm not a historian, an anthropologist, but the thing that intrigued me about this map, besides its beauty, is that he really acts as an anthropologist, mostly by using the exact words of Marco Polo, who was Venetian, doesn't give Marco Polo credit, but this map, map is accurate. And we know that because it's been studied and uh, the place. So, so he sort of did a bit of a Steve Jobs uh, and, and yeah. stole a lot of the information for this map yeah. from other people. And he didn't credit Marco Polo. He did not. And another explorer, Niccolo de Conte, also a Venetian explorer and scholars who have, um, you know, looked at this this map have suggested, well, maybe it was just so normal to him that Marco Polo's this is 200 years after Marco Polo, Marco Polo. And so maybe he didn't feel the need to reference him. He wasn't arguing with him. And it turns out the things that 
he got from Marco Polo were absolutely correct. And they have been, you know, place names in China, Southeast Asia, they were all correct. And even monuments, temples that Frau Mauro took his descriptions and drew pictures of things, they turn out to be correct. So that's something that underscores Marco Polo's, uh, his book that he was, it did all happen. And he really did go on the Silk Roads for all those years. Meredith, you seem quite bold as an academic. You're not sure, <laughs> certainly. Um, and I'm curious as to the subtitle. Venice, a medieval monk and the creation of the most accurate map of the world. I mean, Venice wasn't really part of the medieval world. It was in some ways, I guess, a bridge between the medieval and the Renaissance or even the early modern world. Why was Moro, in your view, a medieval monk? Was there well, something medieval about him or did that word just kind of get thrown in the subtitle? Well, first of all, the subtitle is written by Pegasus Books and not by me. We always um, blame our editors when, when we don't like what we see, uh, Meredith. Well, titles are, are you, you, they get passed by you and you can ask for them to be. I changed. hope you didn't have an Australian editor, did you? <laughs> no, not this time. Um, uh, because Frau Morrow was right on the cusp there, he was really uh, late Middle Ages. So he was right on the cusp moving into, into the Renaissance. And so I think of him as more yeah, of a... I mean, I'm thinking of the, the Stephen Greenblatt book, The Curve. Uh, remind me of who he was writing about and the, uh, and the period between Morrow and, uh, and, and Greenblatt's book. I don't know Greenblatt's book. I don't know what that is. Oh, it's about um, information and in the, in the medieval age. Let's talk a little bit more then about the role of maps. Was this map, in a sense, designed for navigators, for sailors? No. I'm given that Venice was based on its yeah. no, navigational these... power, was it, I mean, did, did sailors and captains go and look at this map? Oh, I imagine they did, uh, but it was mostly in a cabinet uh, on San Michele for a couple of hundred years. And uh, it's not besides uh, when I talked about he showed you could do different routes and you could connect them together, it's not, its purpose is not navigation, like a Portalon chart, which is really a navigational document. And, and they look very different. World maps have always been more artistic and in that sense, more useless to explorers. They're more of an expression of something rather than a way to do it or to, or to find it. And in my mind, that's what makes them interesting. Is you mentioned, like yeah, you mentioned earlier a later scientist, of course, Copernicus, and much of this was a challenge to the way in which the papacy in particular saw yeah. the world. How political was this map in terms of the papacy? Would have there been people in Rome who objected to this map? Well, uh, Venice, of course, had lots of problems with the Pope. Um, Venetians have always been and are today. Uh, these are people who are very proud of being Venetian, and right. they, they didn't like the Pope interfering. It didn't mean, it doesn't mean they didn't want to be Catholic. They just didn't want to be told by the Pope. So there was a, a big separation between the Pope, and in fact, the Pope once extra um, excommunicated the entire city of Venice. I don't remember the date, but uh, so. Yeah. Quite a compliment, the, I think, for the Venetians. Yes, right. So the Pope may not have liked it, but he couldn't stop them because they were powerful economically. 
and they were, you know, in the middle of water and uh, just weren't, they were ignored a lot by Byzantium and then by Rome. And then the church was there, but a lot of, I mean, the first idea of the separation of church and state comes from another Venetian monk, Paolo Scarpi. I mean, you know, and he, and he was Venetian. And so Venice was always a little bit different than the rest of the Italian peninsula. And, because, and it was a, a republic, of course, and not like places like Milan, Ferrara, et cetera, um, or Florence with the Medici. It wasn't a, a, a single family in charge. It really was a republic. And eventually there were noble people, but they weren't so much based on birthright as they were on money. If they were rich, then you know you could be in the golden book. So it was always a very different system, and the longest, still the longest running republic in the world. When John Adams, <laughs> when John Adams wanted to write the Constitution, he looked at many governments around the world, and he wrote a couple of pages about Venice, which I've read, and he totally got the government correctly, which was a government made of committees. And the Doge had no power, really, but always committees. Not very democratic, but very effective. Uh, Meredith, I'm just back from uh, Istanbul. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1457 or in the 1450s when this map was created, of course, uh, there still was uh, a Byzantine empire. I guess mm -hmm. the, the city was called Constantinople. Mm -hmm. Who was Venice's rival? Was it? the rising Ottoman state, which of course would seize Constantinople um, a few years after Moro's map. Yeah, and, and Venice also invaded uh, Constantinople before that. Their rival was Genoa. That, that was the rival. And that had to do with trading. Um, I mean, that's why Marco Polo was in, he wasn't in jail, was actually in someone's house, but there were always the sea battles. And Venice is also, was also different in that they never really wanted to conquer land. It was really about ports. If you go around the Adriatic, you see the line of St. Mark because they wanted a port. It was all about trade. It was all about money. And it wasn't about empire in that sense. Um, and when they did eventually take over some of the mainland, some feel that was the beginning of the end of Venice because they had to have a land army for the first time and everybody had to pay money for it. Uh, and so that's one reason I keep going there and writing about it is because it's so unique for a Western culture. It's really different, I think. Yeah, although it's it's no great hardship nowadays to go to events, no, is it? it isn't. <laughs> I mean, I got these photos of you from your website. I, I think I'm going to write a book about them. <laughs> yes, and I just got back. I was just there. Uh, so, yeah. And it's a very different place when you really get to know it, when you yeah. don't spend two days. But I usually stay a month, two months, three months, and I speak pretty okay Italian now, and that makes a huge difference. Uh, how... Um... How much of when 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 the this map came out? How well mapped was Venice itself? Well, Venice was actually pretty well mapped, and in fact, regional maps 
uh, all over Western culture and, in, and even the East, that was pretty normal. You you mapped your area because you know you're plotting out people's farmland or something like that. And so there were there were several maps of Venice itself. And, and after this map, many more of them that you can see in the museum. Yeah, it was well mapped. Mm-hmm. Uh, the map, as you said, is is in many ways. I mean, I, I once had it as a, as a piece of art. It seems increasingly like a piece of art today. Yeah. What was the cartological development that, so to speak, unseated this map? What was the next major development in the history of maps? Discovering North and South America. But I guess maybe first would be Diaz going down the uh, western coast of Africa and rounding Africa. That that would be the next one. And then discover the quote unquote discovery of the Americas, even though they were already there, and that there were two continents in the way of Asia that nobody knew about. And I write a little bit about those, not much, but a little bit about those uh, in, in towards the end of the book about the consequences of that. And there's some feeling that Columbus knew about Frau Mauro's map. We, we don't know for sure, but we figure he must have. And certainly the Portuguese did. And, uh, you know, it's mentioned in, in, in uh, some- And when was the first relatively accurate scientific map of the world? What? Well, you know, I don't know how to answer that because they they have changed so much every yeah. time and you get into the whole issue of perspective once it, it, once they realized that there were two other continents on the other side I mean they always knew they knew for a very long time that the world was a globe uh, but perspective was the issue and everybody was working on that and there was the, the real uh, clinging on to uh, Ptolemy and his way of doing it and Frau Mara discusses him all over the map and so there seemed to be what today I think we call academic or intellectual arguments about how you do this and I, it's, after writing this book I would just say cartography is always changing Always. It certainly is. And I, I wonder, we began talking about with, 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 with the discussion of Apple. I mean, what devices like the iPhone have, have done, of course, uh, Meredith has done away with the value of maps. Now we don't need them. Now we have these automated maps, especially with AI. Uh, what, what does your book, Here Begins the Dark Sea, tell us about what we're losing when we lose maps, when we simply do away with them? Well, first of all, I don't think all maps are that accurate, and that's because I've tried to use Google Maps in Venice, and it's often wrong. Yeah, well, it's good, yeah. There's that, uh, but GPS, and in, in the insert in this book, I have one of my favorite pictures is a comparison of Landsat photographs and Frau Mauro's map, and they, they put the Landsat photo in the same position as Frau Mauro's map and, and to show that he got so much right. I think that... At least when I talk to people, everyone still loves maps. There's something about holding something. I love maps. I mean, I, yeah, I can't yeah. and anything well, more romantic or meaningful. Nothing. And and then you put them on your wall. And when maps were made in Venice a long time ago, it was a sign that you were an intelligent and educated person. And so maybe that's still with us. You're an intelligent, educated person if you like maps and you like to look at them and you appreciate both how they're drawn, the artistry, but also the information they give you. 
There's some, they're captivating for us. Yeah, and, and as, as you say, maps are, or the concept of maps and of cartography are, are, are plastic in a sense. It's changing. Yes. We've done a number of different shows on maps, one with my old friend Parag Khanna on humanity's ever-changing map in terms of demography and movement, another with Daniel Jurgen on the new map of energy and geopolitics. Yes. What are the meaningful maps? Yes today um meredith the, the equivalent of a frau moro map of the early 21st century well, i love the one where the perspective is pretty much correct and when you do that you see that north america the united states is actually very very tiny ones that really show in comparison what countries are bigger than others because i think each citizen of a country thinks their country is the center of the earth and it isn't and i think that's fabulous and people are still fiddling with perspective but it's 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 pretty close to perfect at the moment and now they're used i don't know if, if your listeners uh know about this website called the decolonial atlas where they map all kinds of things like native american indigenous languages or um I don't know, just all kinds of political things. I guess you would call them political or ideas. And uh, to me, that's fascinating, where the information is basically layered on top of the land. And we learn something from that. Finally, uh, Meredith, we've done lots of shows about the next frontier, which is, of course, space. One about how private tech tycoons like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are trying to colonize space, others about extraterrestrial creatures. As we begin to more and more accurately map the universe because of our technology, our, our telescopes, what does your book, Here Begins the Dark Sea, what does it teach us? How does it warn us and how should we be encouraged about mapping the new world, the new universe, which is space? I think, and this is uh, also my anthropological view, is that one culture, one peoples, they don't have all the answers. And that you really have to compare across cultures, across peoples, and across ideas to get something. I guess in a sense, there is no truth. There is only perspective. And, and so each map is a little different and will continue to be so, no matter who does it. It will never be perfect. So there's no truth. Maybe, Meredith, we can get rid of Australia. <laughs> you can't. I like it there. You can't. <laughs> uh